there's room to grow by letting more people in. I think a lot of times, even as a, a young founder and at this point, 10 years into it, I'm always reminded by my biases and my projections based off of even my short 10 years of experience. And when new people come into the organization and you relinquish control over things that might have not been best for the organization for you to hold on to for as long as you held on to them, that it's amazing to see the space that's created and the room for growth when you allow new ideas in as well. So there's that very fine balance between trusting yourself and, you know, that resolve on your intuition, and then knowing when the perspective of new people will be what will help an organization grow. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. If you like our show, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you work in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Amy Zeidelman, CEO and co-founder of Zoom Foods, about the versatility of tahini, why she and her sisters started importing it, and how ignorance is bliss when launching a new business. Hi, I'm Amy Zeidelman, co-founder and CEO of Zoom Foods. We are purveyors of tahini and tahini products in the American market, and we're on a mission to get tahini into every kitchen across the country. Nice. I'm excited for that mission to happen, and I'm excited to have you on the show. Your products look delicious and your story sounds really interesting so i'm excited to unpack it a little bit before we dive into zoom though when i was poking around doing a little research i noticed that you were a hebrew school teacher while you were in college and i'm curious i had a recent guest on whose original plan was to go into academics actually (laughs) but then pivoted into cpg so was there a time when you thought you might want to go into education and continue teaching I didn't have much of a plan, to be honest, when I was finishing up college or in college. It wasn't in entrepreneurship or teaching specifically. I think that my personality has me going through motions in in real time a lot. And actually, it's through the process of starting Zoom that I've become more of a planner. But it's funny because when you presented that thought to me, it got me reflecting on how much I do like teaching. You know, I taught Hebrew school in college. It was a great way to earn some extra cash and connect me with my Jewish values and community outside of the college space. My year after graduating college during that market research stage of Sum Foods, I lived in Israel for a year and I actually taught English there in a public school. And then one of my favorite things to do since having, you know, Zoom under my belt is the opportunity to go and talk to students. At this point, primarily college students in marketing and sales classes and mostly at my alma mater of University of Delaware. So it's interesting. I do really like teaching and maybe it's just an innate extension of my interest in interpersonal communication and connecting with people and just being able to hopefully share or add value to people's lives. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think going around and talking to students about your experience since you have been doing this for a little while now is amazing. But then also it occurs to me through your brand, you're also trying to educate the kind of mainstream consumer or whatever, whoever doesn't know that much about tahini, about the wonders of this food and all the different ways you can use it. So to some degree, the brand is educating too, right? A hundred percent. That's super insightful. Yeah, I mean, our primary objective over the past 10 years has been consumer education. You know, it's one thing to bring a product, but a product that especially has very little understanding in the market that we are introducing it to, our whole platform, our whole foundation is based off of consumer education, what tahini is, the health benefits, all the ways that you can use it. So I think you hit the bull on the nose there. Yeah, I've had this conversation a few times with guests, but I feel like that's where the 
like 20 year overnight success that people hear about <laughs> all the time. I think that's kind of where that comes from is it somebody that's known about a thing that the rest of the world should know about for a long time. And, you, and they were behind the scenes growing this business for a long time. But by the time, you know, some random person in the Midwest of the United States finds out about it, they're like, oh my God, this thing just popped up out of nowhere and look how successful this company is. <laughs> there must've been an overnight success, but really they've been working on educating consumers in the industry for like 10, 20 years at that point. Yeah, 100%. I mean, our framework or like a large path for us has been the direction that Hummus has taken over the past 30 years, you know, a big gateway of people to tahini still to this day, and, and most new adopters to tahini is through hummus. And if we look at the trajectory of hummus from the Middle East to, of course, the coast, and still its efforts in moving towards middle of America, or really that mass consumer profile, um, we see a lot of parallels of tahini just, you know, a couple decades behind what hummus has laid the foundation for. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have a tool like hummus that's helping you educate consumers that you can kind of piggyback off of. I've had some friends that have been at the forefront of like the cricket protein market, mm -hmm. trying to educate US consumers on the value of insect protein. And that's a much harder sell because there's not something like a hummus that they're like, yeah, but you've been eating it forever in this other form of thing that you like from these restaurants that you go to. Like there was no analog. They just had to like well, just ignore the fact that it's crickets for the U.S. market, right. whereas a lot of the other world is totally fine eating insects, right? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, my introduction to people, it still always starts with, are you familiar with tahini? The assumption that most people aren't is still front of mind for me. And if they say no, then my second question is, are you familiar with hummus? And obviously, a lot more people are familiar with hummus. And exactly like you described, that gives us an opening to describe, to explain that tahini is the second ingredient, although most important ingredient in making good hummus. And so it's been a very valuable asset, the foundation of hummus to us. But what's also been interesting is that all consumers are different and tahini is one of the most versatile ingredients that you can really use. And so finding that gateway that what will resonate with a potential consumer, especially newer adopters to tahini, it could be a brownie, it could be a smoothie, it could be the chocolate spread that we sell. And so having the time to explore all those conduits and introductions to tahini has been really important in our adoption you know, strategy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was at Expo West at a startup CPG kind of after party. They had a few vendors there, some local people from the California area. And I'm pretty sure, I can't remember the name of the brand. I wish I did because it was pretty delicious. But they had some cookies where they had made the cookies with tahini. And it just made the cookies just really kind of rich, creamy, and soft. And it was just like everyone that I was standing next to that was tasting it was like, oh, my God, this is delicious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and again, I wish, wish I would remember the, remember the name of the brand right now. But uh, they were they were just getting started. I think they were like months into the business at that point. So I love hearing that. Hear I mean, that's year. really the direction that we see for tahini is it's opportunity across products and categories in CPG. You know, we've worked really hard to establish the foundation of tahini by its core in by the ingredient itself 100% roasted and pressed sesame seeds for those of you you know listening in that are still wondering what is tahini it's an ingredient made from 100% roasted and pressed sesame seeds and it's primarily known in the US market for its use in hummus but in across the world they use it in baked goods they use it as a substitute for fats in a variety of recipes savory and sweet and we recognize and are excited by the opportunity for tahini to continue to expand in the U.S. market in new products, not just by the core of its, you know, the product or ingredient itself. So tahini cookies really excites me. Yeah. If I can try to track down their name or something like that, I'll, I'll shoot it over to you and maybe put it in the show notes. With that said, I mean, let's, let's talk about why tahini in the first place. So you, you launched Zoom soon after you got out of school so when and how did you end up deciding to start a food business in general? Because like you said, that wasn't on your roadmap. So how did that come to be? And then why the focus on tahini in the first place? 
Yeah, great question. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I'm the youngest of three sisters, and my oldest sister, Shelby, also studied entrepreneurship, um, business, and college. Our parents were both entrepreneurs, so growing up with parents that ran their own businesses, brought their businesses home, us helping them with their businesses was not really foreign to me, although I didn't realize that I had this direction of you know going into entrepreneurship. And it was actually my middle sister, Jackie, that moved to Israel in 2008 after graduating high school, ended up going to college in Israel, ended up meeting her now husband, Omri. And Omri, while they were dating at the time, this is 2011, as I was finishing at University of Delaware, was in the tahini industry in Israel. Tahini is a ubiquitous ingredient in Israeli cuisine across all Middle Eastern cuisine. I mean, Lebanon in particular has a lot of really amazing tahini manufacturing and recipes and things like that. And as Shelby got to know Omri, her entrepreneurial brain and business background really started going saying, you know, what is this ingredient that is Omri's, you know, business and why isn't tahini a more popular ingredient in the States? And she pinged me for that market research. And I studied interpersonal communication. I didn't even know what market research meant. And she said, (laughs) you know, go to the grocery store and just buy every tahini that you can find and make a list of the label and the brand and the price and the taste and, you know, a whole variety of qualities. And I did. And what we found was that You could only really find tahini on the bottom shelf of the international aisle. The jar, the can likely had dust on the lids. Most (laughs) people had no idea what tahini was. And if they did, they only used it to make hummus and they were throwing away the jar, you know, six months later when they found it in the back of their fridge. I think for a lot of people, that would be an indication to run in the other direction. There is no market here, right? There's what is (laughs) the opportunity. But for us crazy entrepreneurs, we see a huge opportunity, which is how can we, through bringing good tahini to the American market, help make it a more popular ingredient with American consumers? I mean, that is kind of an ambitious thing to do is like, look, there's this product here that nobody knows about and it's collecting dust, but we're going to change that because, I mean, one of the CPG is a a hard business sector to be in in general and a very expensive business. And then when you have to educate your customers about it, whether that's retailers of why they should put it not on the bottom shelf, but on the middle shelf, but also educate consumers that like, hey, this is something you can use in lots of different food applications. That can be time consuming and expensive as well. But you all kind of decided that was worth the journey and just dove straight in, huh? Yeah, I like to say we were young and dumb. You know, if we knew how much it would take or how much it would cost, we might have run in the other direction, actually. Our father also, I mean, it's a mantra for life. Everything takes longer and costs more, you know. And so I think having that perspective from early on was helpful in managing our expectations. And we were lucky in the fact that we were able to establish an omni-channel sales approach, you know, selling our tahini, not just in these more traditional CPG channels in grocery stores or online D2C, but also to restaurants across the country that really alleviated that burden, especially that financial burden of starting a food business. But yes, starting soon, we thought good food business or good CPG food business meant getting your product onto every grocery store shelves and into every person's home. And luckily, because of selling to restaurants, especially early on, we realized, wow, there's a revenue channel that doesn't take as much cost in marketing and brand and things like that, that's able to create a strong foundation for us to continue to grow the CPG and branded side of the business on, you know, on the success of a bigger B2B wholesale opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that's smart for a lot of businesses. I know simplicity is helpful sometimes. Just pick one channel and focus your growth there just because, again, it's time consuming. It's expensive to grow in each channel, right? But at the same time, most healthy businesses, whether it's CPG or or anything else, have kind of a diverse revenue stream, right? Where you've got your D to C growing so that if COVID hits all of a sudden, (laughs) you're not going to just go out of business instantly because nobody's going to restaurants anymore, but you've got the restaurants that support you when CPG or D to C is, or sorry, when retail or or 
your direct to consumer is slow and so on and so forth. They all kind of like balance each other and support each other out, but it is hard to grow multiple channels at once. So since you were just mentioning that, I'm curious, did you start with one channel and ended up omni-channel or did you start omni-channel? We started with omni-channel and then we realized which one was working and we <laughs> let the other ones go for a while while we put our, most of our intention into the one. And so it was after about 18 months of selling tahini that we recognized that 80% of our revenue was coming from food service, but we were spending all of our time and finances, right? Trying to build <laughs> yeah. this brand, trying to get people to our website, getting into stores, and then spending my time demoing in the stores and getting it off the shelves. And so it was with that hard look after throwing ultimately, right, like pasta at the wall that we saw what was sticking, what was working that we did. We pulled back into that simplicity approach and said, what if we just focus on food service for a couple of years? You know, how can that help us to sustain the challenges of starting a business? And it was very valuable for us um, to be able to have that channel to focus on for those couple of years while still having the product available on Amazon, on our website, and in the stores that made the most sense for us that we were able to get into with little resistance. But exactly like you said, right, when COVID hit, luckily those online channels and those brick and mortar channels grew. And then in the aftermath of COVID with all the supply chain troubles and the privacy settings on D2C ads or whatever, our restaurants and the food service that has have rebounded really well is now able to carry those other two channels. So having the omni-channel is definitely a sustainable approach. And I also think that a big part of our simplicity, because we believe in that wholeheartedly too, is we really only sell one product. I mean, yes, we have a couple of sweet spreads or chocolate spread, a dark chocolate sea salt tahini that's phenomenal. But most of our effort is really still in just selling tahini. And I think having that specificity and just clarity on one product has also alleviated the risk of spending too much on distractions. Yeah. Again, it's like a, it can be a great strategy or it can fail you miserably. Like I'm trying to remember the name of the company that makes this famous sriracha sauce in the US. Like, I'm spacing on, on the name right now and I don't want to butcher mm -hmm. it, but, but they're having to like more or less shut down production right now. Cause I think they ran out of, they could like, they had a bad batch of chilies or like there was some sort of supply chain issue and they had to stop production. So anywhere you see it on store shelves right now, it says like limit one per customer. Cause they're just like running out of supply. So it's like, sometimes that focus is helpful because they wouldn't be the brand they are now if people didn't get to know them for this one core product, but it also can put you at risk in some cases. Like what if all of a sudden there was a sesame seed blight <laughs> and like your yeah. business is under in two days, right? So well, pros and cons, right? Always. And then any good management team or strategic thinking member of the team, you have to be weighing those all the time, you know? So yes, that is top of mind. And doing those yearly SWOT analyses gives you the opportunity to reflect on those strengths and weaknesses and threats. And I would say that there have been a lot of new threats over the past few years that I never would have put on a SWOT analysis starting soon. <laughs> yeah. that now uh, we're definitely keeping track of and trying to account for, for future thinking. Yeah. I imagine all of us business owners are thinking like, where was COVID on my SWOT analysis? I wasn't never, even thinking right? about that. You know, global like, pandemic, of course not. So yeah, yeah exactly. Some companies thrive through it. Some of them went out of business. Some just like survived it, right? But there's things like that that you just can't predict. But to your point, you just got to make some intelligent guesses and move forward, even if there are isn't a lack of, or isn't full clarity on the fact that your path will work out, right? Sometimes you just got to lean in with your gut. Like, I think this one product is going to do well for a while. I'm going to lean in on it. And then sometimes you might say, well, what if something happens? Maybe we should launch some other products as well, just in case. So, But it's perfect, all just perfect. about kind of reading the market and kind of understanding your business and your customer. Yeah, I think you made a really good point and it's so cheesy, but I have young kids and my four-year-old son, we love Frozen. We love Frozen 2. And uh, Frozen 2, there's a quote that when you don't know what to do, you just do the next right thing. And I think as yes, a totally. CPG, a business owner, and especially during COVID, sometimes that's, that's all you can do. And when you have 
We were lucky to have the years behind us before COVID hit and our trials and tribulations across, you know, other aspects of the business to just give us the problem solving resolve to be able to get through that initial turmoil of COVID or whatever might rear its head. But yeah, sometimes all you can do is just the next right thing and just figure it out from there. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's 100% true because if you're going to be an entrepreneur and want 100% certainty that what you're doing is right, you will never move forward because you're never going to have 100% certainty. So you got to look at the data and just do the next right thing. I love that. 100%, yeah. So speaking of the next right thing, you did that initial market research. You looked at all the tahinis that you could find on the market shelves in the US and you found them lacking, I believe. That's why you decided instead of just kind of joining one of those companies and helping them market, you decided you need to launch your own tahini. So what was that process like in figuring out what was lacking, like why those products weren't as good and figuring Mm -hmm. out how you could make something better? Like what did that journey look like? Yeah, I mean, and to clarify, it's not that we made it better, but there were better options out there that we could facilitate and curate for the American market that were not options here yet. So we're not our own manufacturers. We contract with manufacturers and we are focused on the sales and and marketing side. What differentiated what we set out to do with Zoom early on was that piece of going back to the beginning, consumer education. It was that A, at that time, nobody else was bringing to the market high quality tahini, which is the, you know, a combination of the source of the seeds. Sesame seeds from Ethiopia are highly regarded internationally as the best seeds for pressing into tahini. And there was no Ethiopian seed tahini on the market at the time. And the foreign manufacturers, wherever they may be, really didn't have the foresight or the experience to understand the American market and the American consumer to best position the product themselves. And while we presented to many foreign manufacturers, whether they'd like to partner with us, they really didn't want to, you know, and so we decided then there will be a more typical arrangement of, you know, co-manufacturer and vendor relationship and we'd set out to create a brand on our own. And in doing that, I think that it provided us a lot of safety, right? Because we didn't have to go into our manufacturing, which is a huge cost that a lot of startups have to have when they do need to make their product themselves. And we were able to retain those resources for the consumer education and marketing aspects of the business that otherwise we might have had to spend elsewhere. And so for us, it was taking tahini and explaining its qualities, in particular, the source of the seed, similar to coffee or wine, where sesame seeds grow, produce a different flavor profile, consistency, creaminess, all that great stuff. And also its usage occasions. You know, we really wanted to put our time and our effort and our resources into teaching people all the ways that they could use it. And so for people that had never heard of tahini or were only using it for hummus to present them with salad dressings and sauces and baked goods and ice creams and and all of those ways that they could use it, we were able to really reserve our resources for the heavy lift of consumer education of a new market, of creating a new category, as opposed to having to go into the manufacturing ourselves. And so that's been a great aspect of our business. And then really through the years in particular, because of our relationship with some of the chefs that we work with, And the nature of the restaurant industry needing consistency and American consumers needing that consistency as our consumers tend to do. You know, in Israel, it's it's a commodity, right? If if the tahini is a little thinner or thicker or a little bit more bitter this season than last season, they're just adjusting based off of taste. They're adding more water. They're adding more lemon juice, right? It's such a natural aspect of their cooking technique that they don't mind the variability. But in the American market, especially in the restaurant industry, when you're talking about chains or small, fast, casual chains that need consistency across lots of locations, we worked really hard to identify the qualities that our chefs needed in order to hold those quality assurance standards at the manufacturer in Israel. And so that's one of the benefits of having 
my sister in Israel is she was able to maintain those quality standards by being our voice and our, you know, mouth ultimately on the ground there. While my oldest sister and I, Shelby, were able to grow the business, the operations, the marketing and the logistics side over here in the States. That's interesting. And since you're talking about kind of how you and your sister just kind of divide and conquer a little bit, I'd love to just skip ahead to that part of the conversation. I know that it can be really amazing working with family, of course, just like with friends, but it can also be really horrible, right? It just totally depends on how you work together and what those family dynamics are. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Midday Squares, but I had Jake from Midday Squares on the show and he was talking about how for them kind of being family and wanting to do this right and wanting to have kind of a healthy culture internally, they committed to having weekly kind of business therapy sessions together to just be able to air out any grievances and frustrations and whatever and just work it out in a healthy way rather than just like holding it in internally or making a toxic work culture that the rest of the team has to be subject to. So I'm just curious how it works with you and your sisters. Like how does that dynamic work out? What's the kind of culture you have? How are you dividing and conquering? Like, how does that all work for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And my sisters and I, while we look alike, I mean, some people would say we're even triplets. We have very different skills and interests as it relates to what we studied or the aspects of the business that we would bring the most value. So we were able to really disperse the responsibilities of Zoom between those skill sets. And I also think coming from a family that grew up in an entrepreneurial way is that we recognized very early on that the boundaries needed to be set between the business and the family. I mean, there are even times when we have to tell our parents, we don't want to talk about the business today. You know, we just want to hang out <laughs> and go to dinner and not talk about Zoom foods and being able to create those boundaries early on and hold each other accountable to those boundaries really alleviated a lot of stress or any drama we're also just not a very dramatic family, to be honest. And so, you know, that, nice. that made it yeah. a lot easier. And running a business with my sisters has been amazing. So now Jackie has always been and still is part-time because she's based in Israel and manages the relationship with our manufacturers. She also manages our understanding and connection to our supply chain through Ethiopia, through her and Omri especially's evolution through the supply chain now being based in commodity exchange in Ethiopia with Ethiopian business partners. And Shelby was our CEO, COO, you know, a variety of roles within Zoom Foods as we needed it through the years. And she left Zoom full-time last November. And so, you know, we've been lucky in that we've been able to tap into what we like and what we're good at, which is a huge, you know, it's a huge goal of us within the entire organization that everybody's sitting in a seat of what they like and what they're good at. And we used ourselves as the example. And that has really been able to permeate through the culture of the company in general is that if you're not good at something and you don't like doing it, A, it's because I love my sisters. I don't want you to have to put yourself through that stress. And B, we don't want anybody to have to be stressed like that on a day-to-day -day level as it relates to the opportunities of what needs to get done at Zoom. So it's been a great experience. Since Shelby's been out of the business, I mean, it's been a huge adjustment. We used to spend every day together, or if not together, then talking on the phone all day. And since she left, you know, it's funny if we talk once a week and I'm calling her to update her about Zoom besides being the president of the board and, of course, you know, connecting on all big strategy conversations. And just the other day, Jackie is in town for the whole summer. She comes in every summer with her daughters from Israel. And so we've been spending a lot of time together. But it was through a work event, through a female networking event here in Philadelphia that the three of us <laughs> yeah. were able to go out for the only time in the past eight weeks, just the three of us, right? No husbands, no kids, <laughs> nothing. And so Zoom provides a lot of value for us to stay connected in what is otherwise a very busy world for anybody to really, you know, keep in touch these days. So it's been a really great experience and a great gift to our family, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful when it works out, right? It's just, it can yeah. be, there's plenty of reality TV shows of when it doesn't work out and there's just constant fighting and, and screaming at each other and like stepping on each other's toes, but it's wonderful that it's work, works out well for you all. Hey y'all, we're going to take a quick break. 
So one of our community members can tell you about her new course offering. Are you a business or marketing professional interested in shifting your strategies and actions to be more sustainable? The Green Marketing Academy offers education, customized training, and certification for businesses and marketing teams who are working to build a more ethical, transparent, accessible, and inclusive marketing plan. Visit our website at thegreenmarketingacademy.com to learn more or follow along with us on social media at The Green Marketing Academy. Now let's get back to our conversation. So jumping back to Tahini in general, for those listening right now who are still like, okay, I get Tahini is in hummus, but like, what else do I do with it? I'm curious, what are your some of your favorite foods that you make with Sue? Sometimes it's not even making with it. It's just adding it to things. You know, I love to put Tahini on my oatmeal or on my Greek yogurt with sliced banana. It goes great as an ingredient in homemade granola. You can put some on your, oh God, into salad dressings. You know, I love having just a traditional lemon tahini sauce in my fridge that I can dip my vegetables into or also put on proteins and fish and things like that. The versatility is one of the most overwhelming aspects of the product itself and actually kind of strips away that simplicity, which is when it's good for so much what do you lead with, right? Like how do you really connect (laughs) or choose what to, you know, how to position it? But you're right, tahini in like a good chocolate chip cookie, there's just something so unique, nutty, but still more sophisticated than peanut butter. It's really an intriguing and inspiring ingredient that you can put in almost anything. I wish I could steal the Frank's Red Hot saying, you know, I put that shit on everything, but it's just so (laughs) true. It's really. I mean, you could steal it, just customize it. I put that zoom on everything. (laughs) Right, exactly. Don't sue me, Franks. I love Franks, actually. And I did put that shit on everything in college, like all the time. um, (laughs) I'm sure they appreciate the shout out. Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's awesome. So I assume people can probably find some like really amazing recipes and food ideas on your website. So we'll, we'll for sure put a link in the show notes there. But. And we'll give them the website in a little bit, but just in case they're just really curious right now, what is your, where can they find those recipes? Sure. So our website is Sum, S as in Sam, O-O-M, foods.com. But really, if you type in tahini recipes to Google now, it's amazing how many exist and how, like how much tahini has been able to infiltrate our cooking culture here in the States over the past 10 years. You know, starting soon 10 years ago, nobody was cooking with tahini unless they were sharing some hummus recipe, you know, from some hippie blog. And now people are using it for cookies or a fish dish or, you know, salad dressing, soups, marinades, it's unbelievable. And so to see the rise of tahini through, I have to admit, a lot of our efforts and also the success of being able to position Sum in the type of restaurants that we positioned it in and the chefs that lead those restaurants and our influencers in and of themselves, the whole, you know, take on of tahini in American foodie culture has really been beautiful over the past five to 10 years. It's just really taken off even more than I could have imagined. Okay. And I just thought of a question that is going to be a bit out of left field, but what's the strangest thing you've heard of somebody putting tahini in? Oh, that's a really good question. I haven't figured out how they've done it successfully, but People put tahini, it's not even strange. People use tahini as a substitute for, in addition to vegan milks in recipes to add additional fat, whereas a vegan milk or like an alternative milk might not really work out. And so the milks in coffees, although I've never really done it successfully, but like on a barista level, for instance, um, has been some of the more interesting aspects of it. I think where I find the most intrigue is when people use tahini in a way that's difficult, and that's heating it. Heating tahini, for some reason, has a lot of different issues that come up as it relates to the fat content and the oil content and so many things. So when people execute heating tahini well into recipes, I'm really impressed. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, The funny that you kind of mentioned the barista because 
when I asked you that question, the first thing that came to mind is I'm sitting here sipping on some coffee and I was like, I bet tahini would be kind of delicious in this, in this it, coffee. It tastes so good. Don't get me wrong. But like my most successful way of integrating that is through a smoothie, for instance, right? I'll put coffee into a smoothie with some ice cream or yogurt, depends how healthy you want to be, you know, and coffee and banana and all those great flavor profiles. But just mixing tahini into hot coffee it just gets like all clumpy and weird. And so I'm always really amazed when the, you know, the chemistry side of, in, of using ingredients like tahini rears its head in different dishes or beverages. Yeah, that makes sense. And just speaking of like versatility and kind of previously, maybe people had only heard of it through hippie blogs. It kind of, I know it's completely different products, but it kind of reminds me of ghee, like where like for a long time you would only hear of ghee through your hippie friends, like you said, but then all of a sudden you go to Expo West and there's like five or 10 ghee brands on the market and they're making chocolate ghee and a bunch of other types of ghee and trying to, same thing you're doing, educate people on all the myriad of uses for ghee, right? So Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a similar challenge in terms of like taking it out of like a, a niche culture and trying to mainstream it a little bit by making helping people understand how it's used and making it less quote unquote weird. Although I imagine for some people, ghee feels more weird than, than tahini would, because at least tahini, maybe they're used to having it in like hummus or something like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a great example. And there are so many ingredients now that have been given the opportunity to have its moment or not just moment, but, you know, withstand the test of time because other people and cultures have been using it for thousands of years. You know, it might be something new to our market and our consumer basis, but the truth is that tahini has been a coveted ingredient. You know, they've been pressing sesame seeds down into a paste for millennia, you know, as far back as 5000 BC. And so for it to be introduced to American consumers where they can relate to it is one thing, but it's not necessarily new, you know, just like ghee. And it does take the right combination of team and strategy and consumer education, I think, to hit the right and to pinpoint that right opportunity for introducing it to new consumers. Yeah. And some of it's, you know, just luck, you know, by which I mean, with all entrepreneurship or anything else, it's right time, right place to some degree as well, right? Like, like you said, Zoom's done a lot of work to raise awareness around tahini, but it also happens to kind of write off the on the coattails of hummus and also with culinary movements and, and whatever else. But some products just fail to ever take off just because it was wrong time for that specific product. Yeah. Yeah. But, I can definitely relate to that. So it's part of the reason tahini is having some success, I imagine, as some of the sustainability attributes and nutrition and other things. I saw on your website that you list some of the reasons why sesame is better for the environment, for example. Do you mind kind of rattling off some of the reasons why sesame is a good crop to grow? Yeah. One of our most, you know, I I, I always say, I don't think I could be in CPG if I were selling and no offense to people that do like chips or a bar or something like that. I mean, I really, to sell one thing for 10 years, you have to find a lot of value and passion in it. And one of the (laughs) things that was a big takeaway, and I love chips, so don't get me wrong. I eat chips every day. I love chips. But one of the big things that really inspired us was the qualities of the sesame crop. It's a drought resistant crop. And so it takes significantly less water than especially some of its alternative options in the nut butter category. What, you know, was apparent to us were the conversations happening around almonds and almond butters 10 years ago that are still happening today and how tahini is a great substitute for that product. And so the health benefits of sesame married with that sustainability aspect of it, especially given the constraints on CPG because of the state of our environment, you know, um, it's given us a lot of optimism as it relates to sesame's opportunity across categories and as an ingredient in, in lots of products. And because, you know, you talked about the chili for the sriracha or Dijon mustard right now is having an issue because of the, you know, constraints on that supply chain. And so the 
drought resistant nature of the sesame seed itself is something that I think will help it withstand this consumer adoption stage and really have holding power, not just in the States, but across many markets and many, many product categories. Yeah. And it'll give you more resilience in your crop. Like you were saying, like if it's, I know people who are in the nut butter space, for example, where when prices are going through the roof on almonds because of how much water they take or droughts or whatever else, then they have problems selling product because if almonds are 20% more expensive than peanuts, maybe people will buy it. But as soon as it jumps to like 200 or 300% more expensive, especially for organic, then fewer people are going to buy it. So having something that is a little bit more, like you said, drought resistant, a little bit more resilient crop will help keep your supply chain going stronger and longer. Yes, but there's also a, a risk, right? I mean, early on in Zoom, there was a year where the sesame crop in India was destroyed because of flooding, right? There was too much water. And so that had its impact onto the cost of sesame internationally. And we started seeing our first times where our margins were being squeezed and things like that. And so there's risk when it as it relates to commodities and agriculture, because at the end of the day, sustainability and not this like greenwashing term of sustainability, but the opportunity for whether it's a company or product to withstand the tests and the challenges and the threats that are coming, whether an environmental factor or management people circumstances factor is the number one thing that's going to make or break our business, right? If it's not a sustainable product, if there's no opportunity for the inputs of that product to exist in the future, then we're all in a lot of trouble. So I think that um, keeping that perspective, especially as it relates to agricultural and commodity-based products, is something that U.S. consumers, American consumers have been better enlightened with over the past few years than in the years before. Yeah, I feel like the word sustainability for too long of a time felt like this value add, like, oh, it's a nice to have if something is sustainable. But the whole point of the word sustainable is just that it is able to be sustained, which means right. we're not going to run out of this or we're not going to deplete our resources or we're not going to whatever, right? So it, it should have never been a nice to have. It's the bare minimum, right? And most companies these days now that the mainstream is kind of caught up to this idea of sustainability being kind of a necessity, more companies are leaning in on this idea of, of regenerative and regeneration because sustainability is kind of the bare minimum. If we want to be able to have tahini in 20 years, we need a sustainable tahini or sesame supply chain, right? Yeah, 100%. But I noticed on your website, you mentioned that sesame adds uh, beneficial nutrients to the soil and is naturally disease and pest resistant, which starts pushing it more in that kind of regenerative side, you know, maybe use less water, add nutrition back to the soil, et cetera. Um, do you have any kind of deeper insights into kind of how it works in the soil? And is this a good crop for regenerative agriculture? It is a great crop for regenerative agriculture, I would say, and I have very limited knowledge of this, so I can't speak to it in completeness. But one of the challenges that we experience, especially as it relates to the crops in Ethiopia, is the advantages of the regenerative nature of that type of farming, right? To rotate your crops and, and be able to contribute to the sustainability or to the you know nutritional value of the soil through crop rotation and shifting what you're growing year over year. Ethiopia has had such success on sesame that the feedback we were getting from farmers is that they didn't want to, you know, replace their sesame crop with a different crop for oh, this yeah. season because the sesame is what's selling right now. But I do know that a great complement to sesame is sorghum is something that the farmers were really exploring. I was in Ethiopia and able to go to the Humer region where the sesame seeds grow in October of 2017. So October is the sesame harvest. And sesame grows in a lot of different places. And I think that there are other regions that are more focused on the regenerative, sustainable aspects to the farming of sesame and that Ethiopia is still improving in that capacity. So I don't know a lot about it, but actually 
have been learning a little bit more about the regenerative properties of sesame and its benefits through Sarala Harada. Are you familiar with her? She started Simply, a regenerative commodity business, and they're doing some work on sesame in Peru. That's been really interesting to learn about. So no, I mean, I think one of our biggest opportunities at Zoom is to continue to educate ourselves and become the experts or not experts, but at least be connection between consumers and experts on all of the amazing properties of sesame and where we've succeeded so far is in that application, that foodie application and nutritional application as it relates to consuming the product. And as we get deeper into our supply chain with more knowledge of our supply chain, we can, you know, continue to contribute to consumers education of a more holistic vision of the benefits of sesame. Nice. Yeah, that's great. One of our recent guests, Adam Heiner with Pacha Bread, and he was one of the co-founders as well of Boochcraft. People mm-hmm. might know him better from there because Pacha is the newer company, but it's a buckwheat-based kind of superfood kind of bread, nutritious bread. But one of the benefits of that crop is that it works really well as a kind of a rotational kind of crop with regenerative agriculture. So that was part of why they lean in on that is because it will if they get more people to grow regenerative organic buckwheat, it it just helps the whole regenerative system. So it's nice to know that maybe sesame has a place to play there, but of course it's all about region and, and moisture levels and all sorts of things. So it's interesting, the more information we, I slash we, the world find out about which crops are better than others. Another guest we had on the show was talking about how almonds get this bad reputation for being water hogs, you know, like needing too much water. But his point was that it's not necessarily the almond plants that's the problem. It's the conventional agriculture that has ruined the soil and made the soil so hydrophobic or whatever. It like doesn't absorb the water anymore. But if you grow almonds regeneratively with healthier soil, they take way less water and it's not as much of a problem anymore. So it's it's this complex system that we take like little data points out of context and we think we've got all the answers. But in reality, everything works within a system. And when we get the system right, everything works better, right? But at the same time, there's always going to be some crops that are easier to grow in this region or take less water in that region. But because we like to pull something out of South America and try to grow it in Washington, that's where we come up with problems. Yeah, yeah. And it's just nice to know that there are really smart people paying attention to it. And a lot of the issues that we have now or have overcome in the past or will need to overcome in the future, I think we're able to handle it as long as we all maintain our perspective on on the sustainability of everything, right? Of economies as a whole. Absolutely. So if anyone wants to hear more about that almond story, you can check out the episode with Tim Richards from Philosopher Foods. We'll put maybe a link in the show notes as well. Okay. So with that said, you've been in business a little over 10 years now, which is a huge achievement, right? Most businesses go under in the first year and then a bunch more within five years and very few actually survive 10 years. So congratulations on that. What do you wish you knew 10 years ago when you started this business? Oh God, I'm glad I didn't know anything or else I wouldn't have started (laughs) it, you know, like... (laughs) Ignorance is bliss, in my opinion. I think I wish I would have known. I wish I would have had more confidence in my and my sister's intuition. I think that that has been a really important learning lesson for us. A lot of what I reflect on that were like some of our biggest roadblocks was just not trusting ourselves and having that doubt. And I think it's natural to have that doubt when you're young. And so it's par for the course. But That is one thing that I think really would have benefited us in terms of some of the decisions that we made and, you know, roller coaster loops that we had to go through to get to where we are today. But I have to say, like, as I reflect on 10 years, and especially over the last few, and even before COVID, we had our, you know, our fair share of challenges. 
you're so lucky to go through those challenges when you're younger and smaller because there's less implications on a smaller business. And so I really wouldn't trade the mistakes that we made early on because we were able to learn from those mistakes before we were a bigger business and they would have had bigger consequences. So I'm sure when I listen through other people on your podcast that they're going to have some really nice insights. But I just think ignorance is bliss as it relates to being a founder and that the more you can withstand the turmoil or be able to put out fires, the more resilient you know you become as you grow. So maybe more knowledge is, would not be such a blessing for the state of food entrepreneurship especially. Absolutely. That's been mentioned a few times that uh, <laughs> ignorance is bliss because once you know how difficult a business is, especially one as difficult as CPG, and especially when you're trying to do it the right way, sustainably, mission-oriented, et cetera, which is just more work. If you knew how much work that was going to be when you got started, you would probably just look for like the quicker path or the easier path or the whatever and just not done it, right? So yeah. there is something nice about that naivete of just jumping in, being like, I'm excited about this thing and I'll figure it out. Right. Um, but to your point also, I think you were saying maybe trusting yourselves a little more back then because your intuition was strong. That just occurred to me that it is kind of this weird thing that we often have this imposter syndrome or whatever where when we're starting something new, we don't trust ourselves that much. But the funny thing is that's when our eyes are the most open. That's when our perspective is the most fresh and that's when we're going to be more likely to see the flaws in a system because it's all new to us. You know, like you see glaring things that someone who's been sitting in that room for 20 years doesn't see anymore. <laughs> but then we ended up trusting ourselves too much when we are seasoned. And by which I mean, you close a bunch of doors, you close yourself off to perspectives because you're like, well, I tried that 10 years ago, so it's not going to work. And you, you start almost trusting your past experience too much and you're less open to those new things and you don't see potential problems or opportunities quite as much, which is you know, that that's a generalization, but I think what you were saying kind of sparked that in my mind. It is kind of funny. We should trust ourselves more when we're new and less when we're experienced almost. Like when you're really experienced, ask your younger team members for more advice, you know, get feedback from people outside your industry, find the things that you're not seeing. Yeah. And what you said also just sparked the thought of how much there's room to grow by letting more people in. I think a lot of times even as a, a young founder and at this point, 10 years into it, I'm always reminded by my biases and my projections based off of even my short 10 years of experience. And when new people come into the organization and you relinquish control over things that might have not been best for the organization for you to hold on to for as long as you held on to them, that it's amazing to see the space that's created and the room for growth when you allow new ideas in as well. So there's that very fine balance between trusting yourself and, you know, that resolve on your intuition, and then knowing when the perspective of new people will be what will help an organization grow. So I think that fine balance is something that I'm still learning. And I'm sure most people in business are always learning. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why this is called Evolve CPG, because we're always learning and growing and, and changing, right? And I think as soon as you think you've finally figured it out and you know everything, that's when you're probably the most wrong you've ever been. <laughs> because right. whether your business is growing or changing or the economy is growing or, change, or you know changing or COVID's coming up or you're customers like evolving like it's always changing so if you're not constantly learning you're gonna you're gonna get behind for sure yeah definitely okay so with that said you know maybe you wouldn't give your past self a bunch of advice because you want to learn all those lessons and get to where you are now is there any advice you would give other entrepreneurs just starting out who are trying to grow their own kind of food business or try to um find something they're passionate about or try to build something in a sustainable way? Yeah, I would say be really, I'm curious your perspective on this, but be forthcoming with your ideas. What I found is that 
the more you share, the more opportunity you have for that feedback to come, you know, that can help alleviate a roadblock or maybe, you know, inhibit you from growing because you wanted to hold on to something that you thought was particularly proprietary or really important to the growth of your business or your, you know, the opportunities for your product. And the one thing that I found, especially in food, is that unless you're the first two, nothing is really that unique. You know, anybody can come and start the business. Even if you are the first two, somebody can be right on your heels, launching a very similar product with a different brand. And so the more that you open yourself up to receiving that feedback, whether it's from customers or advisors, or even, you know, potential competitors where you might have some opportunity for collaboration, that actually releasing that fear will help you grow more. So I would say that if you have an opportunity to share your ideas with somebody or lots of people, don't be afraid to because they could steal that idea anyway. So you might as well get the good advice as opposed to just keeping your mouth shut. Yeah, absolutely. I I would second that in that you hear people talk about how ideas are a dime a dozen, right? Their ideas are not valuable. It's the execution that's valuable. And to get good execution, usually it takes a lot of different people chiming in from a different perspective so that you can see your blind spots, right? So if you're not out there kind of sharing what you're up to and what you're struggling with, you're limiting your problem solving to just your narrow perspective. Whereas if you share it with other people, you know, whether that's the intern, whether that's your investors, whether that's your colleagues or even competitors, when you share it with other people, you open it up to a wider problem solving team and you're going to get better solutions to those problems. And especially I feel like in in some industries, it's probably a lot more cutthroat. But in this industry, from what I can tell, most people are collaborative, by which I mean, I've got plenty of friends in the industry who are friends with literally all their competitors and they get together and eat and drink and chat and swap notes all the time, right? So I think for sure some people are overly scared to share anything and they're like, oh, my idea is precious. But (laughs) your idea is not precious. A hundred thousand other people have that same idea right now. (laughs) It's it's how well you execute it. And if you want to execute it well, diversity is the key. You need more perspectives. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Exactly. So that is the advice I would give. Love it. Cool. So maybe let's just wrap up with where is kind of Zoom in your kind of evolution right now? What's the future look like? Oh, God, if I knew, right? I mean, we've got uh, a great strategy to continue to expand our retail footprint. So after years of, you know, focusing on food service, and then the trauma of having that channel ripped away from us and the growth of our consumer channels to be able to carry us through, it really accelerated that transition of soon becoming more of a household brand, even more so than we were able to accomplish early on. And so we're working on national rollout across retailers. First and foremost, we rolled out with Whole Foods nationally in May, which has been great. And so continuing on that natural and that natural retail channel that you'll see a lot of other CPG brands embark on. And we're working on some of our own product development as it relates to a pipeline of what other products can we put out that people will be excited to bring into their homes that have tahini as its core and as the soul of those products. Um, And so there's a lot of room for tahini to continue to make its space in the market and in the nut butter category and into people's kitchens and shelves. And also for people to find products that are ready to use and also embrace the you know positive characteristics of tahini at its core. So we're really all focused on that growth into additional CPG, which is a first for us in the 10 years that we've been in business. So all those things like we talked about at the beginning is that it takes a lot of resources, time and money in particular. That's what we're embarking on now. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's every stage of the business, there's a new challenge. And um, so focusing on this retail challenge right now is going to be a fun one. You know, it's going to open up new things that you wish you knew (laughs) before or whatever, but you might not have entered it if you didn't know that, like we were talking about before. But I wish you luck there because obviously in your initial market research, you found that 
it was hard for consumers to find a good teeny. You know, it was on the bottom shelf collecting dust. So if Now in this next stage of your business growth, you can make sure that when people go looking for tahini in the grocery stores, they find Zoom and get a better experience than great. It helps solve the mission, which is amazing. So just a plug for everyone that's listening. You do have organic tahini. You've got your original tahini. You've got dark chocolate tahini and regular chocolate tahini. So it's not just one kind of product type. Go check out the website. And then also I saw that you were selling, I think, a a date syrup, which I've got like tons of date syrup in this house from gift from friends in the UAE. Uh, They called it, I think, dibs, I want to say is what, if I'm pronouncing it right. But I think your date syrup is, is, I think I saw that you were calling it something else, but how do you, okay. And how do you use your date syrup just as a sweetener alternative? Yeah, exactly. So it's a great alternative to honey, agave, or maple syrup. And it's a real complement to tahini. So similar to peanut butter and jelly, I think in our culture, tahini paired with Ceylon, the date syrup is just a delicious flavor combination. I love to add it onto the Greek yogurt or oatmeal with my tahini. I love to use it as a sweetener in baked goods or even marinades and salad dressings. You know, some olive oil, Ceylon, salt, pepper, and garlic is just phenomenal. Apple cider vinegar in there. And so exactly, in in ways that you might sweeten something both savory and sweet with a sweetener like honey, agave, or maple syrup, Ceylon's a great alternative because of the, you know, nutritious nature of the dates themselves. Yeah. And it's it's got a nice, unique flavor to it as well. I like I love, like, let's say, just put using it as a sweetener if I'm making cornbread or I was mm. just literally using some last night to make as the sweetener in the Thai basil sauce that I was making for like a Thai dish, but it just adds like a unique character. I'll I'll actually make a Thai iced tea sometimes and use that as a sweetener, for Mm -hmm. example, but it adds kind of like a nice roasty dark sugary kind of flavor to it almost. But anyway, so people know where to find your products now. We'll put the links in the show notes and everything. So thanks for taking a little time out of your schedule to share what you're up to, share some of the lessons you learned and, give us some more reasons to try tahini and and love sesame seeds. So thanks for everything that you're doing and good luck with the next stage. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Amy or Zoom, go to zoomfoods.com. That's S-O-O-M foods, plural, dot com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs>